If we've never met, my name is Greg. I look after a couple of things here on the team and um, been away for two Sundays. And so it's great to be back. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to go straight to the most easiest book in the New Testament to read, Revelation. So let's go. Come on. My talk today is around anything that you lose by being faithful to Jesus is actually a gain. And we live in a culture where we're always focused on prosperity, what we can get out of things. Our, world, our Western mindset tells us that we should always be better improving, but it's not the full gospel. If that's your version of Christianity, you've not actually read quite a chunk of the New Testament, let alone the Old Testament. Sometimes our faithfulness to Jesus means we miss out on stuff. Ever been in a workplace where they want you to do something that's against your ethics and you have to make a decision? Or you're in a family that don't share your passion for for God and following Jesus and you miss out on stuff? This is part of our reality of discipleship. Our faithfulness matters to God. It should matter to us as a church. And there will be times because the world we live in does not love God, appreciate or having any insight into what God has provided for us, they won't always see things the way we do. Not only that can make our life very difficult. We're going to learn from a church that was experiencing that and they were about to suffer severe persecution and as a result, Jesus speaks to John in a vision and gives them gives them a message through John to encourage them to persevere through their suffering. And so a very lighthearted subject today. Welcome to church. So here we go. Let's read the text. We're just going to do one of the seven churches. If you know the book of Revelation, um, there is, it starts with seven small letters or messages to seven churches in a region around Turkey and Greece in the modern language. So in the biblical text, it was called Asia, Asia Minor. But in our modern world, with with current borders and and countries, it's basically Turkey on the Aegean Sea. There were seven churches around there. So here we go. This is um, when you read from Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 8. And this is what it says. And this is Jesus speaking. John's writing it down. To the the angel of the church in um, Smyrna, it's pronounced. Write this. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came back to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus doesn't pass the political correctness test in our modern way of thinking. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful. There's the word. That's the command. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The one who's victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Well, Jesus isn't mincing his words here. 
And this church is about to go through horrific circumstances and we know historically exactly what happened to them. But let me start with not the ancient church but with the modern place and it's actually a continuously inhabited city. It's never actually been deserted. It's still there today. It has a different name. It's not Smyrna. It's called Izmir. And it's located on the Aegean Sea in Turkey. In fact, if you just go, if you row across the sea, the Aegean Sea, you end up in Greece. So to give you a bit of a context on a map. It's only five hours drive south from Istanbul, which of course Istanbul is the city that straddles the two continents. Um, and it's a big modern city. But this current city that exists in the same location as Smyrna has a population of three million people. So it's, a, it's a, just a little bit smaller than our city. It's been continuously inhabited. In fact, it's the third largest city in Turkey today. And here's what I want you to know. The church has never stopped functioning since the day of Christ in this place. Even though they were persecuted and suffered because of their faithfulness, this is what the statistics tell us. There are more Turkish Christians living in this current city than in any other city in Turkey today. So let's have a look at the ancient city of Smyrna. And the ruins are actually right in the middle of the modern city. So you can see the ruins there. You can go and visit it today. Sue and I have not been to this one, but we've been to Ephesus, which is huge. You just cannot see it all in one day. Um, when you think of ruins, we often think of small little places, but Ephesus is massive. And in fact, there was a rivalry between these two cities in terms of how big they were, how um, f sort of pros prosperous they were, um, how culturally relevant they were, all that sort of stuff when Jesus speaks these words to them. But this ancient was a Greek town inhabited really from about 1000 BC right up to 300 years. So that's really the period where Revelation is written. So from 100 after Jesus for the next probably two, 300 years, they suffered persecutions under at least 10 Roman Caesars or emperors. The large columns you can see at the bottom of that picture is actually one of the biggest temples that's been uncovered by archaeologists. It was the temple to a god who was the daughter of Zeus in Greek mythology and it was the temple of Athena. And so have a look at this. This is a little video clip where archaeologists have restructured what it would have looked like at the time that Jesus wrote these words to the church who are living there. So in this temple, you would actually consult. This was what the Romans and the Greeks did. They would consult this particular god, Athena, the daughter of Zeus, when they wanted to win a battle in a war. And they would sacrifice animals, burn incest. They would worship this god. They would try to get wisdom on strategies in warfare. So even though this is the only sort of the largest temple that they've discovered through archaeology digging, in fact, they've discovered many more ruins of other temples, probably not as big, but literally there's probably countless temples. Um, so I mentioned like Zeus, Hermes, Eros, Hercules. They had many temples to different Roman um, Caesars that previously lived. You'd have to worship them as well. So this is a culture where if you're a Christian and you're following Jesus as the Messiah, you have many gods to choose from. Now, what we understand is that God is very, well, what's the word? He's very jealous that if you want to follow Yahweh and you come to faith through his son, Jesus Christ, 
You don't have any other gods. You have to, in, in other cultures of the world and in ancient cultures, you would, if you, if you, if, uh, uh, an army would come through and they would bring their belief system and their gods with them and enforce you to worship them, you would just add them to the conglomerate of different gods that you're already worshipping. But in this ancient culture and in some modern parts of the world today where Christians worship God, God says to us, there is no other God. And we know from other biblical texts that nothing, the idols are worthless and what's behind them are spirits. And that's why God says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to say that I'm your king, not Caesar, if you're going to say I'm your God, not all these other gods, even though you live in a city filled with temples to hundreds of other deities that you can worship, Yahweh says, it's me alone. And in fact, why don't you just flick to Revelation chapter 1, have a look at this, because sometimes I think people miss this. I don't know if you ever read Revelation. It's so easy to read and understand, isn't it? It's amazing. Uh, well, anyway, we, we, I've got no time. Charles asked me how long did I need today. I said two and a half hours, so... I hope you brought your lunch. No, I'm joking. Look at this. This is the very first sort of opening lines in the book of Revelation. If you look at uh, verse uh, 4, where it says, To the seven churches in the province of Asia, so that's modern-day Turkey, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and is to come. That's going to be repeated right throughout this book. And then we have this language around the churches. Seven is the key word here. Seven spirits before his throne from Jesus Christ who is faithful witness, now look, listen to this sentence, it's not on the screen, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So imagine living in this ancient culture, you have to worship the Roman emperor, whether you're Greek, whether you're Turkish, whether you're Jewish, they're trying to force you to worship all your gods from your culture and now that you're under Roman rule, you have to worship Caesar as if he's a divine being. And what does Jesus say right at the start of Revelation? He says, I am the ruler of all the kings of the earth. So all this devotion and this worship that was going on in this culture was creating some problems in this city. So what do we know about the ancient city of Smyrna? Well, we actually know quite a bit. Then the name Smyrna actually is the, is the Greek word for myrrh. Heard of myrrh before? One of the gifts that Jesus got as an infant? And in fact, it comes from sap and they crush the sap to pull out the oil and it had a beautiful fragrance, which perfumes were, you know, you didn't go to chemist warehouse to get the special deal. They were very expensive in this culture and they were used really by wealthy people, who the only ones that could really afford them, landowners, slave owners. Um, but one of the traditions right through the ancient world in this part of the earth at the time is they used myrrh to embalm bodies to cover some of the stench. And so this is, it's interesting, the language here, and Jesus talking to them about their suffering that was about to come, and some of them would actually be put to death by their faith, because of their faith. And the name of the city actually means myrrh. We also know the rival to Ephesus. I mentioned that before. Um, there's ancient coins from this time period that mentions this city as being uh, the beautiful crown, if you like. There's a couple of different coins that have phrases around how grand, spectacular, modern this Smyrna city was. And it was a civic centre. So it was positioned on the sea, like Ephesus. That's why they were like trading ports for the ancient world. 
And so it was right at the foot of this big mountain, which is still there, has a different name today, but Mount Pagos is what it used to be called. And so they believed a god lived on top of that mountain, but the, the city itself was built around the base of the mountain. And this 500-foot mountain was incredible, a visual spectacular of you arriving for the first time to see this city. Here's some other things. It was a commercial centre. Right on the seaport, bustling, prosperous, prided itself as a, as a place of intellect, had many different gods and religions, had art, had temples, and in fact, the ancient Olympic Games were held in the city. This is the type of modern, vibrant sort of culture that this place was. It was a cultural centre. They had a 20,000-seat Roman auditorium. You can still see the ruins today. That's pretty big. I've seen other Roman ruined theatres that are much smaller than that in other um, archaeological sites in the world. Um, this is a very big one, 20,000-seater. Some of the very first science schools and medical schools started in Smyrna. So this is the type of place, you think about you living there, this is a very modern, vibrant place, lots of wealth, prosperity, trade, learning, arts, many different temples and gods. And in fact, Homer, the Greek poet, lived here. And if you know any, anyone knows of church history, Polycarp, great name, isn't it? Because it doesn't mean anything what we think. But Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, a personal disciple. And in fact, history tells us that when John died, who wrote Revelation, Polycarp was around 25 years of age, and he was leading the church here. And in fact, became effectively in church history, they call him the Bishop of Smyrna. And he was eventually killed for his own faith because he would not worship the emperor as divine and so they burnt him at the stake when he was 85, which is an incredible lifetime. But the, the, what they call the cult of the emperor, worshipping the emperor as a divine being, was common practice. So this is what the church was living in. So let's have a look at the text. Let's go back to the text. Here we go. Let's look at verse 8. I encourage you to take some notes. because I'm talking about faithful. How do we be faithful when we're under pressure and we feel like we're losing things? And if I just don't be so Christian, or if I just don't tell other people, maybe I'll be better off. Because Jesus here in Revelation is telling us the exact opposite, that it is going to cost us at times to be faithful to him, but what we have gained through our relationship with Jesus far outweighs any loss. Even if it's traumatic, painful, torture, suffering, which still goes on in countries today, as we know through um, the, the groups, the parachurch groups that work with suffering Christians around the world, in the last hundred years, there have been more martyrs than in all previous centuries put together. This, hasn't, this problem has not gone away. Now, we may not experience it living in this city today at the moment, but things aren't that comfortable, right, with current theology, ide ideologies and government structures. And so this is what Jesus says in verse 8 to this church. He says, write these words of him, so he's talking about himself, who's the first and the last. First and the last. There is nothing that happens in all creation that Jesus is not aware of and doesn't govern. We have to understand that. Even your suffering your persecution, or you missing out on what you think you should have got because you've been faithful to God, Jesus is not unaware of that. 
And what he wants us all to do, no matter which time period we're born in, no matter what circumstance we live in, what type of city, whether there's other gods or political persecution, he expects his followers to be faithful to him and have nothing between your relationship between him and you. Because he knows every, he's first and last. There's nothing, when this earth goes, he still exists. He created, sustains everything. And then when he says it was dead and came to life again. Now this is significant. We know it's obviously about his physical resurrection from the dead. But this is in contrast to worshipping divine, supposedly divine Roman Caesars already happening in this city. Some, it started with um, the famous Caesar that, where they carry his name in uh, 44 AD. But when they started worshipping their Caesars as divine in many Roman cities around the world at this time, what happened was, this is in Jesus is saying that in contrast to the divine, supposed divine Roman Caesars that they're being forced to worship who have died and have not come back to life. That's, that's the inference here. If you want to know if Jesus is real, he rose from the dead. So the reason that he is as we read in verse 5, chapter 1, he is the king or the ruler of all the kings of the earth. He's the only one that went into Hades and came out again. He's the one that's proven he's far above every power, even ones that persecute us for our beliefs. He's far above it. And he wants us to be faithful. So here's the next verse. Let's have a look. Verse 9. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, Jesus was Jewish, in case you don't know that. John, who wrote this, is Jewish. This is not an anti-Semitic statement. This is a point of, in Torah, under Jewish law, you could not participate in bringing harm or death to another human being, whether they were Jews or not. And this is what we know through archaeological dig and, and researchers looking at this text. Part of the problem was there's a, there's a synagogue there, there's a, there are Jewish believers there. The rulers in these synagogues were making life very difficult for Christians at this point in time. And in fact, from other cities that suffered persecution, we know that the synagogue rulers actively participated in bringing persecution to Christians. Now, let me tell you why that is. There's a couple of reasons. One of them is, at first, the Roman officials thought that Christianity was Judaism. And this whole, like, because it came out of following this Jew, Jesus, this whole idea of him actually fulfilling the law and being the Messiah, once, once that really developed and then Gentiles got added to the church around seven to nine years after the ascension of Jesus, you know, when um, Paul... Barnabas were in Antioch. They're the first non-Jewish believers. And so in the beginning, they were, the Romans saw them as the same group. But what happened was, of course, some of the synagogue rulers didn't want to be associated with these Messianic followers. And so they would go to the Romans and inform on them. And here's why. The Jews had an exemption. They didn't have to worship any other god. They didn't have to worship Caesar. As we know... If you look at history, there was so much trouble in the old ancient Jerusalem and, of course, um, 
around this whole idea of worshipping. And, you know, the Romans came through in 70 AD, destroyed the temple, which Jesus predicted. And so there was all this sort of ongoing trouble. But in the end, the Jewish officials had convinced Rome to allow them to worship just one God, Yahweh. So they were tolerated as monotheist believers. When everyone else will worship gods, other human beings, so like a Roman governor or a Caesar, they, they could not get away with this. They were the only ones exempt. So you've got this sort of tussle going on, right? And then the last sort of 70 years, there'd been these wars between these uprising Jewish um, rebels, if you like, trying to take on the Roman Empire. And as a result of that, the Romans introduced a special tax only on Jewish people to stop them rebelling, making life more and more difficult. So just think of those few things. This is what's happening in Smyrna. You've got Jewish synagogue leaders, not including people who believe Jesus was the Messiah, even if they're Jew or Gentile, they were not welcome. You had them informing that they are actually not believing what we believe. They should be worshipping all your other gods. Then we also know that they weren't um, providing any employment. And a lot of these Christians, when Jesus says, I know your poverty and your suffering, they, had, they were starving because they couldn't get jobs because of the work of these synagogue rulers. They had, some of them had no place to live because they ran out of money. They were really suffering, but Jesus says, I know your suffering and poverty, but you're rich. Because here's why. Jesus doesn't see things the way you and I do, just limited to the here and now. Right? He's in eternity, and he sees things from that perspective. And even though we might suffer, like Paul puts it in his own context with his suffering, my light and momentary troubles. Not much light and momentary when you're in the middle of it, right? But that's the phrase, because even Paul understood what we have through Jesus Christ is far beyond what we have on this earth. And if all you're focused on is keeping officials happy and making sure you're prosperous enough, rather than focusing on the richness of the relationship that you have through Jesus Christ, then you don't have Christianity. You can't be faithful to that one God in the midst of all this trauma and trouble that these people were living in. They were poverty-stricken because of their beliefs. Couldn't get work, kicked out of the homes they were living in. And so they were the suffering that Jesus talks about here is them being informed on by these Jews. Now, we know that this was part of the problem because there's a very precise, clear record of the martyrdom of Polycarp, just, you know, 50 years after this was written. And if you read, you can jump online and read the, the whole thing because there were historians were there that recorded the event. It was the Jews that were making the Romans move against Polycarp. And in fact, when they sentenced him to death because he refused to worship the emperor's divine, it was actually some of the synagogue rulers that went and got the wood to burn him at the stake. And we know that from other historical documents, not Christian writers, but just writing about the event. So this is the scenario in which these Jewish Christians were living. So let's have a look at verse 10. Jesus says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
Now, there's a lot in that, so let me just quickly unpack some of this. When he says here that they're going to be tested, we know from other biblical texts, with the words of Jesus himself, James, the book of James, the testing of our faith to prove it as genuine is part of our discipleship journey. We may not like it. We may not talk about it very often. We may not celebrate it, but it's part of our discipleship journey. The thing about faith is you can declare that you believe a whole range of things, but when you're suffering in poverty, being tortured, threatened with death, well, some of those beliefs might leave you. And it's not genuine. The thing with belief is, the trouble in the English language is we think it's like a mental ideology that we have in our heads. But in the biblical world, when they use this word pistos in Greece, in Greek, sorry, pistos is the word for belief, it actually literally means it's done by lifestyle. You can't, it's, it's got nothing to do with what you say, because I could say I believe in Jesus, I can say I believe in this God, I can say a whole range of things. But when I'm tested, what I really have allegiance to will come out. And that's what was going to happen to this church, and Jesus is warning them that he wants them to be faithful even to the point. Now, the number 10 there, you'll be putting in 10 days. Most experts, far better, bigger than my pay grade when it comes to biblical theology, say it's probably not literal. Um, and as you know, if you've ever read or tried to read the Revelation through, there's a whole lot of symbols. Numbers have different sort of hidden coded meanings that the first century readers understood, um, but us who are not part of that culture probably don't understand. So they're not sure. There's a whole lot of different theories, but they say it's definitely not a literal 10 days. Could have been the 10 Caesars that followed that brought persecution, not back to back, but overall there were 10 main ones. It, it could be a reference to in Roman counting at the time, the number 10 had, the, had this inference of completion when it was finalised or finished. And so it could have that inference. We just don't really know because we're not part of this original church who would have understood the coded message. But what we do know is that the testing of our faith is part of our discipleship journey for everyone. You know, when you give allegiance to Jesus, because that's what faith is, that is what he's asking them to do. And I believe that's what he's going to ask or does ask all Christians to do in any time period, no matter what their circumstance, no, no matter what your trauma or suffering in life, no matter what you think you've missed out when you think God should have stepped in, no matter what you've missed out of because you've declared that you are faithful to God and you won't participate in things that are actually unethical against your faith, no matter what you've gone through, faith is proven by you swearing allegiance to God and sticking with him no matter what the cost. That's what it is. It's not an idea that sits in your head as, oh, maybe there is a God. Maybe Jesus is the Son of God. It's going to be tested. You, my testing will be different to yours, but we'll all be tested because the genuineness of our faith, James says, has to be proven, and it's normally proven through suffering. That's part of the gospel message. I don't know if you've twigged, but we're following Jesus who suffered and remained faithful. And that's why we have salvation today. 
His journey is not separate from our journey. Now, we're not him. We're not dying on the cross for the sins of the world and to set things right in the unseen realm. We're not him. But the pathway is the same. Unique for all of us in how we encounter it and experience it. But here's the command. Be faithful. And some of them were put to death because of they would not worship the Roman emperor. So here's the thing I want you to know. Faithfulness is believing loyalty. In fact, what would happen, you know, Roman soldiers, um, if their, their, their leader was killed, so, you know, they had legions of, of thousand, like a thousand garrison, they'd have a leader. If their leader was killed, what they would often do, if the new leader was appointed, they would strip down, wash themselves, and they would say that person's name, and they'd say, he is my Lord. Sometimes when there was a new Roman emperor that took power, all the Roman soldiers would do the same thing. Stripped down, as they washed themselves, would say, that Caesar is my Lord. So you know why in the New Testament, particularly in the latest epistles that we read, so 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Peter, Jude, Revelation, that's the temperature of the culture they were living in. Well, they're not Lord. They're not divine. Only Jesus is Lord. And that's why we have that verse that no one can say Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. You probably scratch your head and think when I've read that, what does that mean? But what it means is no one can give total allegiance and abandonment to everything else, every material possession, every other spirit force, every other God, even suffering because you say, my God is Jesus. You can't do that unless you have the Holy Spirit. It's not a natural thing. But this swearing allegiance and declaring someone as God, as Lord, was part of this culture. And so what Jesus is saying to this church is this is not mental agreeance that God is there and Jesus is his son. This is about him having absolute priority, no competition with anything else that's materialistic or spiritual. He is the only one and he demands absolute loyalty. That's faithfulness and it gets tested. That's life for every Christian in every time period whatever our cultural circumstances, what, what distinguishes us, one of the things that distinguishes us is our absolute allegiance to Jesus first. We will go without things because he is our Lord. There is no other God. He's the only one that reigns supreme. And all the kings of the earth are actually under his rulership. I don't worship them. I don't worship any other God or any other human being. Because anything I lose by being faithful to Jesus far outweighs it. That's what he's telling this church here. So here's the last verse, verse 11. Sometimes we miss this little, this phrase gets repeated at the end of every one of the seven little letters to the churches in Revelation. Here it is. Whoever has ears, so in other words, if you get the message, let them hear what the Spirit says to the, notice this, churches. Not church, not Smyrna. If you can perceive this message about allegiance, loyalty and faithfulness, then let you hear what the Spirit is saying to all of the churches on the earth. This is the way. 
that there's no other way except to follow Jesus with his attitude and allegiance. This is not a specific message just for this church. This has implications for every church in every time period in history, including you and me today who are Christians and have allegiance to Jesus Christ. And then this last sentence. Let me finish with this. The one who is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. Now, we don't talk about the second death much. I can't even remember the last time I heard a, a talk or a sermon. Or a, but, you know, there's two deaths, biblically speaking. There's your physical death. That's when you will exit your physical body. And we focus a lot on that, right? Our world focuses on it. We sort of hide it away, you know, Modern Westerns are not Westerners. We're not good at talking about death, facing death when someone's dying. We don't know what to do. You know, we get professionals in. It never used to be like that, by the way. I mean, just one generation ago in Australia, you would actually manage your family member as they died. And in other cultures in the world, people die regularly, yes, from preventable things, but the whole culture and community is involved in that point. But for some reason, we think that death is something to be avoided. But what Jesus is saying here, and if we hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, your first death is not your problem. It's the second one. That's when you stand before Jesus and have to give an account. Your first death, your physical death, is just exiting your body and this world as you know it right now in a physical sense. But in actual fact, the second death when you have to face God, and of course there are many verses that actually talk about this second death. It talks about, in, later on in Revelation, it actually mentions how the second death is um, God bringing judgment and bringing all of us to account. Jesus' promise is if you are faithful under hardship and be, for him, the second death's not no problem for you. You think the first death is the problem, you haven't got to the second one. And we don't hear that as Westerners today, that in actual fact our physical death is really just an exit from our physical body, but the second death being cut off from God permanently, and as it says later in the book of Revelation, the second death is death and Hades, that's the one that Jesus is trying to redeem us from because he went into Hades and is the only human being that's ever walked out. That's the allegiance that we have. So when we talk about faith, being faithful, I'm not, I don't have faith in a concept of a God. I have faith in the person of Jesus Christ because he walked out of Hades. No one else has been able to do it. That's, the, that's why I give him my allegiance. Not for him to make me prosperous or make me wealthy or to make me more intelligent or, you know, not to give you all the stuff we hear around the gospel. It's not always the fullness of the gospel. We have to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Our church, your relationship with God today, my relationship with God today. So here's a couple of things, and I'll finish with this. If the, the worship team can come back, we're going to... I'll give you some practical applications. I'm sure you've already thought about quite a few when you think about your life, but time has gone. So let me finish with these two things. Being spiritually rich is more important than your physical wealth. Much more important. Now, I've had the honour and privilege of travelling into slums in different parts of the world, and some of the believers in some of the nations that I've been to and the conditions they live with, 
they have more faith and more spiritual maturity than most of us in the West because they're suffering all the time. But they never give up faithfulness to God. And I think sometimes we have to be reminded, us Westerners who live in the richest time in history, I'm not saying that struggle is not part of our current experience. It is. But faithfulness to Jesus must come first, whether you're at work, at home, with your extended family, whether you're talking to your neighbours, whether you have to pass up opportunities or you have to go without, because your faithfulness to Jesus, believing loyalty and allegiance to Him first and only is faith. That's what it is. And in our consumeristic, materialistic-based culture, we need to be reminded of this truth. I don't come to church to get something from God. I come to church because He saved me. That has to be a heartbeat in our discipleship. Following Jesus could mean, does mean for a lot of people suffering economically, living in poverty as a result. But it far out, their faithfulness far outweighs what they lose because in eternity, they're so rich. And Jesus comforts this church about their suffering. And this church's experience should remind us that spiritual poverty and the second death is the worst thing. Not current poverty and our first death. We have to be an example in our own life. And the second thing, our great hope is in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. Following Jesus should mean we get opposition, persecution, maybe not in, in like in some other nations in our country today, but in our way of thinking, for some strange reason, and it's unbiblical, we think that God should protect us from every form of suffering and poverty. And what he's often doing is testing the genuineness of our faith. Christians in many other nations face it every single day. And even though at some point all of us in this room will physically die, it's the second death that Jesus is taking the judgment for on our behalf. And in his earthly ministry, he said, do not fear those who can kill your body, rather the one that can kill your soul. That's in Matthew 10, 28, second death. Fear him who can destroy both your soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. The death that matters is the second one. This momentary death that we'll all experience from our physical bodies is not the end of us. It's actually the gateway into the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has promised all of us who are faithful. Why don't you stand with me? This message today is to ignite hope, tenacity, strength from the Holy Spirit. So just close your eyes for a moment. There would be people here and online that you've experienced rejection, missed opportunity because of your faith, you stood firm, that your allegiance is to Jesus alone, not to an ideology, not to a political cause, not to a company, not to a culture, not to a family. Jesus himself said, I've come to bring trouble in families. We will experience the testing of our faithfulness and the command that I want you to remember from 
this church in Smyrna, the thing that Jesus commanded them to do is two words, be faithful. Be faithful. Because the gain that you have in your life by knowing God far outweighs anything that you've lost. And you, some people in this room, I know your stories, you've lost a lot. Jesus does not pretend it doesn't happen. I mean, in fact, he, in this story, he directly tells them more is coming. Suffering is not glossed over in Scripture. But our faithfulness is what Jesus demands of us. And when we say yes to Jesus to be our Lord, our King, our Master, we are saying we will give him allegiance above everything else. So, Father, we just pray for your Spirit to strengthen our resolve to give you everything. You came, Father, sending your Son, Jesus, and gave us everything to be part of your kingdom. Lord God, may we take from this message today, from the example of the church in Smyrna and their suffering, their, their martyrdom, their faithfulness is what stood out in the midst of the trauma, the terror, the horrible things that they were suffering. Father, we complain about, in comparison, the most silly things. But Lord, I pray first and foremost that we would be Christians who are faithful and have nothing but 100% allegiance to you. No matter what we face in our lives, no matter what suffering that comes across our path, that we would be faithful Christians, Christ-like in our followership of you, our God. Just let the Holy Spirit come. I believe the Holy Spirit is ministering to a number of people. You have lost, given up, walked away from things. There's been incredible, difficult moments where you've cried out for God to deliver you and he hasn't stepped in and given you instant relief. But your faithfulness has been proven. You've gained so much more. The Lord wants you to know that you have gained more than you have ever lost. Because your faithfulness is genuine. Just while your eyes are closed, if you've never thought that Jesus is the Son of God, today you've heard a very clear message of the claims of Jesus, that he is God, that he entered into the unseen realm of death and Hades and he rose again. And his love for us, his grace and mercy is for us. You can make that decision today. And this is an invitation not to a gospel or a message that says everything in life is going to be perfect and sweet and beautiful by making this decision. Sometimes making a decision for Jesus makes things more difficult for you. Family members don't understand. Our culture doesn't get why we're so passionate about Jesus. But when you've experienced his loving, saving grace and his Holy Spirit empowers us to be dedicated to him first and foremost, you see life so differently because you're different. You can make that decision right now. Is there anybody here? Just keep your eyes closed. Would you raise your hand right now if you want to make that commitment to Jesus for the very first time? You've never done it? I will talk to you after the service. I'll give you a Bible. 
We'll pray together. I'll explain a little bit more. But if that's you, don't leave here today. You can feel God speaking to you. Don't know what it is, but you can feel that's the God speaking to you that we've been talking about. Father, for everyone else receiving a word from you today for their life, from this message about being faithful, having allegiance just to you, nothing else, not money, not job, not family, nothing comes between you and us. Lord, we just speak to all of us to be faithful in the way that you've called us to do. And may we celebrate that we're not going to be harmed in the second death because of your incredible sacrifice on that cross and our believing loyalty to who you are. 